Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Cultural Podcast, a podcast devoted to Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you, as always, for listening. I have three parts for you today. In part one, I'll review President Aurelio De Laurentiis' press conference on Wednesday, In part two, we'll recap how our players performed in the round of 16 of the Euros. And in part three, I'll provide a brief update on the latest transfer rumors, and I'll bring back an old segment called Transfer Talk. So let's start with De Laurentiis' press conference on Wednesday afternoon at the Hotel Regis in Rome. De Laurentiis was joined by club CEO Andrea Chiavelli and his son and vice president Eduardo De Laurentiis, This was the first time the club has spoken to the media since February. The club enforced a silencio stampa or press blackout after our 4-2 loss to Atalanta and Bergamo, and since then no one has spoken to the media. I think we all thought the press blackout would end after the Hellas Verona match, but we didn't hear from anyone from the club after that. With no one speaking to the media, there were plenty of things for De Laurentiis to discuss from the New Jerseys to the hiring of Luciano Spalletti to Gattuso's departure, but let's start with that Hellas Verona match. De Laurentiis said that Napoli Verona was a great disappointment. He went to the locker room at halftime. He was pleased to see the goal, which relaxed him a little, but he was far less relaxed after Verona drew level. He said, you come to the end of such a complex championship where you can finish second, third, or fifth. Unfortunately, he didn't answer the questions we all wanted answered, which were, what happened? Why did we play so poorly? Why did we look nothing like the team that played so well in the previous two months? And did that performance have anything to do with Gattuso? 
All he said was that he doesn't want to speculate. At the Mauro, he will sit down with the players who are young enough to be his grandchildren and ask them, but he doesn't think he'll get many answers. De Laurentiis did also point out that there was also the Cagliari match, referring to the 1-1 draw where we conceded the equalizer in the fourth minute of stoppage time. I think that's a good point. It's easy to put it all on the final game of the season, but there were other matches where we dropped points that we really shouldn't have, like the late Sassuolo draw as well. Unfortunately, it seems like we may never get an explanation for what happened in the Verona match, at least from our current players, but maybe after a player departs the club, we'll get more details. Now, there was plenty of debate heading into that Verona match about whether Gattuso should be renewed or not. I think we all expected a departure if we didn't win that match. The question was, what do we do if we win? Do we reward Gattuso with a renewal for getting us back into the Champions League? De Laurentiis addressed this subject as well in his usual dramatic, feel Mauro kind of way, which I suppose you could call poetic. He started by saying that everyone measures their education through experience, the way we conceive life. He said he should have been restless and angry, so my interpretation of that is that he's saying he should have been angry with how the season played out, but he added that, in fact, he wanted to quit on Gattuso in August of last year, but it was too late, so even if Gattuso had won, his project would have ended. There were definitely discussions about a renewal, though De Laurentiis said that Gattuso's agent Jorge Mendez is a good friend of his. He said they spoke about a renewal, but they did not meet, because when two written lines end up with legal writers, they become so many that they postponed negotiations. Again, that's De Laurentiis' dramatic way of describing something that I think is quite simple, which is that the deal got too complicated when it ended up in the hands of the lawyers. That is consistent with reports at the time, at least with respect to negotiations being postponed. The media speculated about the reason for the postponement. Il Matino said it was because of quibbles over image rights. La Gazzetta dello Sport said it was because Gattuso wanted to focus on his squad and he was in no rush to renew. And I'm sure there were many other stories out there as well. Then Gattuso fell ill, which was the eye condition called myasthenia, which forced Gattuso to wear an eye patch for a little while. That delayed negotiations even further, and at the same time, De Laurentiis had to start thinking about a possible replacement in case Gattuso was unfit to continue. Gattuso was able to return to training, but De Laurentiis said that that inequality, which I assume means disagreement, which did not create an effective continuity, was the confirmation he needed to end the relationship, even if we qualified for the Champions League. Coming back to Gattuso's replacement, Dallarenti said that he often saw Gattuso in pain complete with the glasses, so he had to look for a possible replacement. In fact, that was partly the reason, at least according to De Laurentiis, that he imposed the media blackout. There were some matches where he saw that Gattuso was not in perfect shape. Gattuso's replacement, of course, is Luciano Spalletti. De Laurentiis said he had been looking at Spalletti for years, but he was already under contract with Zenit, and then we hired another coach. Spalletti was with Zenit from December 2009 to March 2013, which means we would have been looking at Spalletti in 2013 to replace Walter Mazzari, and ended up signing Rafa Benitez instead. De Laurentiis commented on Benitez as well. He said initially Benitez was very English in his approach. He gave De Laurentiis a list of players that would have cost 300 million euros to purchase. Then he gave De Laurentiis another wish list, which again De Laurentiis says was too expensive. Benitez finally provided a third list of players that did not play in England, and some of those players remain with the club even today. There was a bit more information in the post on the club's official website, which is something I've noticed that the club does. They tend to augment De Laurentiis' quotes with additional information. 
There, De Laurenti said he met with Spalletti at Via 24 Maggio in Rome, where Spalletti told him he couldn't come to Napoli at that point in time. De Laurentiis added that he's always respected Spalletti because he managed difficult situations in difficult contexts at both Roma and Inter. I'm sure the mutiny of 2019-20 is still on De Laurentiis' mind. That's what's put us in the position of having to fight for a Champions League spot that was ours for the better part of a decade. Il Corriere dello Sport reported that Spalletti will officially be presented as the new Napoli coach on July 8th at Castel Volturno. Spalletti had his first day with the club on Thursday though. The media followed him from the moment he touched down at the airport to his arrival at the newly named Konami Training Center where he and De Laurentiis briefly addressed the public. De Laurentiis presented Spalletti with great optimism. Spalletti said to the fans, Forza Napoli, and as they say, Saro Conte, he said he is very happy and honored to be the new Napoli coach. He will put himself at their disposal for the good of Napoli. He loves this profession, he loves the cities he's worked in, and he thinks the happiness of cities is different. It depends on the context, and he can't wait to get to know Napoli well. Happiness is definitely different in Napoli, there's no doubt about that. Back to the press conference, De Laurentiis said he will sit down with Spalletti to discuss the squad. I imagine there will be multiple conversations because there are positions we already know need to be filled, like left back. De Laurentiis and Juntoli will need to get Spalletti's input on who he would like to see in that position. We've been linked to Emerson Palmieri for a while, and some outlets are suggesting that Spalletti wants Emerson having coached him at Roma. However, there are other positions that we're not quite sure on. Again, I don't know if there's any truth to these reports, but there have been multiple reports that Spalletti would like to assess certain players at Di Mauro, including Aramunas and Stanislav Lobotka. Obviously, if Spalletti is not satisfied with them, then we'll need to find some replacements. One thing that Laurentiis made clear though, at least on the official website version of the quote, is that we need to focus on outgoing players before looking at possible signings. That's actually contrary to our typical approach of buying the replacement player before selling the player who's being replaced. The change in approach is undoubtedly the result of a very difficult season financially. De Laurentiis addressed the financial situation as well. He said, due to COVID, Italian football as a whole has lost 1.5 billion euros. He also criticized Italian Prime Minister Mario Draghi for not doing enough. About a week ago, Undersecretary of Health Andrea Costa told Radio Punto Nuovo that on August 22nd, stadiums will be allowed 25% capacity and then there will be a gradual progression. De Laurenti says this isn't enough. He said Draghi must take note that over 30 million Italians find an outlet in football and he asked a bunch of questions of Draghi. He said, why not standardize the championships and standardize the start of a vaccination serenity? Why isn't the vaccine compulsory for anyone born in Europe, given that many say they don't want to do it? Why are you not interested in the number one national sport? Football lost a billion and a half, a figure that weighs, but government does not seem to have worked to open up to innovations and to try to heal the budgets all in the red. De Laurentiis also pointed to the fact that clubs help certain institutions who do not invest in club football, yet they are there only because of club football. There he is surely referring to UEFA and FIFA. He said instead of protecting football clubs, they create serious problems, citing the Euro 2020 finals being played in England with potentially 75,000 people in attendance. That is obviously a concern because the UK has a higher rate of infections than other countries in Europe, 
and they have different variants as well. Regarding the World Cup in Qatar, he said a private agreement was made with the Qataris without taking the clubs into consideration, but what if a player gets hurt? Does he get the 70 to 80 million euros he invested? I completely agree with those points. UEFA and FIFA cash in massively on international competitions and don't redistribute much of that wealth to the clubs. But the fact is, the appeal of those competitions is the superstar players who are only superstars because of club football. That's where they showcase their talent on a daily basis, and that's where they develop their brands. Football at the Olympics is the perfect example of that. It's far more acceptable for clubs to prohibit their players from playing in the Olympics so fewer big-name players attend, and clearly Olympic football garners very little interest. In fact, De Laurentiis mentioned the Olympics in this vein. He said they even want our players to go to the Olympics, and then they're surprised we won't let Fabian go. He said if you want players to go to the Olympics, Serie A should be reduced to 16 teams, which is an agenda he's been pushing for a while, and it should start in December. De Laurentiis also addressed the Super League. I won't get into the details on that, but he basically said he doesn't agree with the league in the way that it was proposed, but he does think a different, more inclusive league involving the top six clubs of the five major football leagues would make sense. With respect to the club's finances, De Laurentiis said Napoli's problem over the last two years was not missing the Champions League, but the fact that the team's wages increased from 30 million euros to 156 million. He said the club won't be downsizing, but we do need to assess the budget and cut back on excessive costs. Otherwise, bankruptcy could be around the corner. If you look around, you'll see lots of clubs that have financial problems. COVID played a bad joke on us. We believe that everything would end sooner but we are still experiencing it now. He added he doesn't think the matter can be solved simply by selling a player. Rather, we need to move on players whose salaries have taken our wage bill past what Napoli can afford. I think those comments were made to serve a very specific purpose. We will be negotiating contract renewals with some of our highest paid players, including Kaladu Koulibaly and Lorenzo Insigne. I think this was De Laurentiis' way of letting them know that he is expecting a pay reduction when they renew, not a pay increase. The latest reports are that we're not getting any realistic offers for Koulibaly, and that a solution could be to extend the defender's contract and backload the pay. That would ensure the player gets his fair share while the club reduces its short-term cash obligations. With Insignia, it's a bit more difficult because Insignia will want a pay increase, while De Laurentiis will want a pay reduction. Just like Insigne said in a recent press conference, De Laurentiis said that the two will meet after the Euros, and I'll come back to that in part 3. Now, De Laurentiis did take some responsibility for the financial situation. He said, looking back, there are a couple of signings I probably shouldn't have made, but I'm an enthusiastic, optimistic person, and I spent too much. It was an error of judgment, especially considering that certain buyers still haven't paid what they owed me. In the end, De Laurentiis' aim is to balance the books, and to qualify for the Champions League. One way to improve the club's finances is through jersey sales, which has been another hot-button topic at Napoli. De Laurentiis confirmed that his innovative new idea is to self-produce the kits. Napoli will be their own technical sponsor. The reason why I say this could improve the club's finances is because typically the football club earns only 10% of jersey sales, which isn't a whole lot really. With Napoli as their own technical sponsor, we would keep whatever margin the technical sponsor previously earned. Then the question becomes, can the club produce the kits as cost-effectively as a typical technical sponsor could, and will we sell as many shirts? 
I'll start with the latter, I don't see why we wouldn't sell as many at least internationally because for us in North America, the only way to get shirts really is to buy them directly from the club shop, so it doesn't really matter who produces them. In terms of cost of production, I highly doubt we could produce the same quality kit for the same cost as Kappa, Nike, Adidas, and so on. They all get efficiencies of scale by producing kits for multiple clubs. That makes you wonder how expensive these new kits will cost, which is only exacerbated by the fact that we'll be collaborating with Giorgio Armani on the design of the kits. More than likely, these new kits will be more expensive than they have been in the past, which will probably reduce shirt sales. So that will be something interesting to follow. In terms of the other sponsors, it seems our partnership with Kimbo has officially ended. They are no longer listed as a sponsor on the official club website. There have been rumors that Cafe Aloya will be the new coffee sponsor, but I haven't seen that confirmed by any reliable sources. I'm not exactly sure why you even need an official coffee sponsor, though I hope we have one for Tommy Starace. Interestingly, MSC remains on our official website, which suggests that we may have reached an agreement with the cruise line company to extend their sponsorship deal. About a month ago, the reports were that MSC would not be renewed. Finally, as of July 1st, our training center is now officially called the Konami Training Center after we signed a sponsorship deal with the gaming company. So that will do for part one. In part two, we'll recap our players' performances on international duty. Part 2, we'll check in on our players competing in international competitions. Let's start with Italy, who played against Austria in the round of 16 of the Euros on Saturday. Of course, we have three players with the Azzurri, Alex Meret, Giovanni Di Lorenzo, and Lorenzo Insigne. Meret suited up as the third keeper, but to no one's surprise, he did not feature. Di Lorenzo and Insigne both played the full 90 minutes of normal time and the full 30 minutes of extra time. So let's start with Di Lorenzo, who started again over Alessandro Florenzi. Florenzi remained out of the squad for this match, but as I said previously, even if Florenzi was fit, I think Di Lorenzo did enough in the group stage to earn a place in the starting 11. I thought he was excellent once again. He was tasked primarily with marking Christoph Baumgartner on Austria's left wing, which I think he did a formidable job at. I thought he was really unlucky to be shown a yellow card for a foul he committed on Baumgartner early in the second half. That to me looked like a clean tackle, but even if there was a foul there, it certainly was not a yellow card offense. Di Lorenzo clearly withdrew his legs to avoid making a dangerous tackle. In fact, he barely made any contact, but Baumgartner really sold it. He threw himself to the ground and yelled in agony 
and it worked on match official Anthony Taylor, that's a really big deal because it means if Di Lorenzo picks up another yellow card, say in the Belgium game, then should Italy progress, he would be suspended for the next match, which would be the semi-finals. I must say though, as much as I don't like that kind of behavior, I do sometimes understand why players do that. I'm going to get to the Belgium game in a moment, but in that game, Romelu Lukaku made a run where he was being tugged and pushed the whole way, but because Big Rom is so strong and because he didn't go to ground, the play was allowed to continue. So if officials are going to miss calls like that or only give them when a player goes to ground, then I can appreciate why players go to ground sometimes a little too easily. What made this even more frustrating though was that only a few minutes later, Di Lorenzo won the ball off Baumgartner at the edge of Italy's area. Baumgartner chased him down and committed a similar foul on Di Lorenzo, actually it looked worse, but in that case only a foul was called and no yellow card was shown. Di Lorenzo also had the unenviable task of marking David Alaba who plays at left back for Austria. Alaba is without a doubt Austria's best player and he gets forward quite a bit. I thought Di Lorenzo did reasonably well marking Alaba. In the ninth minute, he made a perfect slide tackle on him to not only win possession but also spring the counterattack. Unfortunately, nothing came of that. He did lose the header to Alaba, which led to the Arnautovic goal that was ruled out. But other than that, I thought Di Lorenzo did a good job of keeping Alaba at bay. I also thought Di Lorenzo was more involved in the attack in this match than he was in the two matches he played in the group stage. That was especially the case in the first half when Austria was playing a little bit deeper and before they gained the confidence to push forward a little bit more. He nearly scored in the dying minutes of the first half but his header from the corner kick finished wide of the far post. And then there was that incredible run in extra time. He didn't score but that was a remarkable run when you consider that it was in the second half of stoppage time. Somehow he still had the energy to make that run which is a clear indication of his fitness. Let's move on to Lorenzo Insigne. Unfortunately this was far from his best performance. I thought he started the match reasonably well. He seemed eager to shoot. He had that weak effort in the 14th minute that was easily stopped by Bachmann. Then a minute later he took another shot at the top of the box and that was blocked by Alexander Dragovic. Unfortunately Insignia faded after that and really wasn't much of a factor in this match. It was similar to the performance against Switzerland in the group stage where like in that match he really wasn't a factor. I thought he looked really tired which might seem odd considering that he didn't play in the Wales match so he had 10 days of rest ahead of this match. Now I don't want to sound like I'm making excuses for him but if you look at the starting 11 only three players played more minutes in all competitions in this past campaign. Gijo Donnarumma, Giovanni Di Lorenzo, and Nicolo Barella. Donnarumma obviously is a goalkeeper so he doesn't have to run a whole lot. Di Lorenzo is an absolute beast and no player should be playing anywhere near as much as Di Lorenzo did last season. That said, Di Lorenzo is a fullback and while I suspect Di Lorenzo and Insigne covered a similar amount of ground over the course of the season in terms of kilometers, I don't think Di Lorenzo runs with the same intensity that Insigne does. A player who does play with the same intensity or perhaps even more intensity is Barella. Barella played 27 more minutes than Insigne did last season so that's basically the same thing but Barella is 24 years old and Insigne is 30 so I think that might just be catching up to Insigne now. That shot in the 14th minute was at the end of a run down the sideline and it seemed like he just didn't have any energy left in his legs. We saw it again in the second half when Insigne got behind the Austrian back line and seemed to be clear on goal but again he didn't have the legs. Instead he tried to square the ball for Barardi and nothing came of it. 
As we saw in the group stage, Insigne drifted toward the center of the pitch to allow Spinazzola to get up and down that left wing, but with the Insigne getting so few touches on the ball, it just felt like Spinazzola was playing both of their positions. It wasn't all bad for Insigne though, you can never question his work ethic, and he always helps out at the back. His best play of the match, I think, was near the end of the first half when he tracked all the way back on the wing and made a gorgeous slide tackle to block Stefan Leiner's cross. By the way, Leiner had a fantastic tournament. I'm sure he's a household name for Bundesliga fans, but for me, someone who doesn't watch the Bundesliga, he was one of the standout players of the tournament. Let's move on to Belgium. Dries Mertens started on the bench with Kevin De Bruyne back in the starting 11. However, De Bruyne picked up an ankle injury only minutes after the restart, so Mertens came off the bench to feature on the anniversary of his wedding. Mertens' wife Kat held up a sign in the stands that read, Happy Wedding Anniversary Baby. This was Mertens' 101st cap for the Belgium national team. A few days after the match, he was presented with a plaque to commemorate 100 appearances for his country. Just like I thought Insigne's performance against Austria was similar to his performance against Switzerland, I thought Mertens' performance against Portugal was similar to his performance against Denmark. Mertens played the first half against Denmark and then he was replaced by De Bruyne at the break. Belgium were completely dominated by Denmark in that first half so Mertens really struggled to get into the game. It was much of the same in the second half against Portugal. I wouldn't say that Belgium were completely dominated in the half, but Portugal were definitely the better side, and I think we can say that Portugal dominated the final quarter of the match. Like Insignia, I thought Mertens did a lot of running without getting many touches on the ball, and his biggest contribution was on the defensive end of the pitch. Mertens blocked Cristiano Ronaldo's free kick, which appeared to be heading for the goal. With De Bruyne likely done for the tournament, Mertens seems like the logical choice to start in the number 10 for Belgium's quarterfinal match. That match happens to be against Italy, so we'll see four Napoli players between the two squads. It goes without saying that Alex Meret will be on the bench. I think the only way he makes an appearance is if we have a three-goal lead and Mancini brings him on as a substitute in stoppage time, somewhat like what he did with Sirigu against Wales. Even if Florenzi is fit to play, like I said, I think the Lorenzo has earned the right to start in this match. Florenzi hasn't played since leaving the Turkey match, which was three weeks ago, so I don't think Mancini would throw him into the starting 11 of a quarterfinal. The big question is whether Lorenzo Insigne will start. I've been fairly critical of our Napoli captain, and I have to say, I think Napoli fans as a whole are probably being a little bit too lenient because we all know how good Insigne really is. That said, I think some of the criticisms I've seen of him by fans of other clubs, particularly Juventini, have been way too harsh. I've seen so many people commenting on how Insigne is overrated or just good, which I think are absolutely ridiculous. A lot of Juventini want to see Chiesa start over Insigne on the left wing, which makes absolutely no sense to me. I think Insigne and Spinazzola have developed an excellent partnership on that left side, and now is not the time to mess with that. Now, I'm not saying that Keza shouldn't start. When we had Carm and Sereno from Napoli Club Toronto on the podcast, we briefly previewed the Austria match, and one of the things we talked about was whether Keza should start over Berardi for that match. He didn't, but Berardi was not very good, and Keza came off the bench and opened the scoring, so I think it's now far more likely that Keza starts over Berardi for the Belgium match. There are some people who feel we should still start Berardi and save Chiesa to have as a weapon off the bench. I think that's a pretty risky approach and a very conservative approach. I'd much rather go after the match than wait till we fall behind or even play level for 60 or 70 minutes before bringing Chiesa on. At the end of the day though, I think we just need to put our trust in Mancini. 
The final Napoli player to feature in the round of 16 of the Euros was Fabian Ruiz. He came off the bench in the 78th minute of Spain's match against Croatia. At that point, Spain were up 3-1. Of course, Croatia scored two late goals to force extra time, though neither of those goals were Fabian's fault. Nevertheless, I didn't think Fabian was particularly effective. In fact, he made a couple of wayward passes in the first half of extra time with Spain already up 4-3. Fabian played a dangerous pass in Spain's end that was slightly out of the reach of Rodri. That actually led to a shot on target by Andre Kramaric, but fortunately for Fabian, that shot was straight at Unai Simon. Then in the second half of extra time, Spain had a chance to score a sixth goal with Fabian carrying the ball on the break, but the midfielder took too long to play the ball out wide to Dani Olmo, and the pass was too short. Fabian did win the ball back shortly after giving it away, but by that point, the threat had dissipated. Finally, in the final minute of extra time, Fabian attempted a shot with his right foot that missed the target. It was a decent effort, but I couldn't believe Fabian actually shot with his right foot. That's definitely something you don't see every day. So those are all of our players remaining in the Euros. We do still have one player alive in the Copa America, which is David Ospina. Colombia hasn't played since our last international update, but will be back in action on Friday for their first match of the knockout stage. Colombia ended up finishing in third place in Group B, which means they will play their quarterfinal match against Uruguay, who finished second in Group A. Lastly, Chucky Lozano is expected to be in Mexico's squad for their friendly against Nigeria on Friday as well. By the time you hear this, that match may have already been played. That match is in preparation for the CONCACAF Gold Cup, which will be played in the U.S. from July 10th to August 1st. And that will do for Part 2. In Part 3, we'll do a little transfer talk. part I'll cover the latest transfer rumors and then I'll close the pod by bringing back an older segment called transfer talk but let's start with the rumors the big rumor this week is that Mario Rui is close to a move to Galatasaray for 5 million euros plus up to a million in bonuses according to Alfredo Pedula. Pedula is reporting that Mario Rui is looking for a small increase to his 2.5 million euro salary. This move makes a lot of sense to me. I mentioned in part 1 that De Laurentiis is looking to cut salaries and 2.5 million euros for a player who would likely be our backup left back is quite high. A player we've been linked to to play at left back is Lille's Reynildo Mandava, but according to Calcio Mercato, Lille are working hard to extend his contract to 2025. 
Sticking with left back, Elsit Hisai, who is officially a former Napoli player now, is on the verge of joining Lazio. Corriere dello Sport are saying that a deal will be closed in the coming days, with Hisai expected to earn 2 million euros per season for 4 or 5 years. Sticking with Lazio, Corriere are also reporting that Lazio are on the verge of signing Bordeaux midfielder Toma Basic. Basic is a player we've been linked to, but Lazio have always been ahead of us in the negotiations. Lazio already have a deal in place with a player who would earn 1.3 million euros per season for four seasons. Now they need to reach an agreement with the club. Lazio are supposedly offering 6.5 million euros and Bordeaux want 9 million, but given their financial situation, beggars can't really be choosers. We're linked to a number of midfielders who could be alternatives. In terms of defensive midfielders, we're linked to Anderlex, Albert Mboya Lokonga, Sheffield United Sander Burge, and Bologna's Jerdy Schouten. We're also linked to a number of attacking midfielders, including Sampdoria's Morten Thorsby, Alkmaar's Toon Miners, Club Brugge's Charles de Ketelaer, and of course Hellas Verona's Matthias Zaccani. Verona's president, Maurizio Setti, addressed Zaccani this week, speaking to Gazzetta dello Sport. He said, he's fine with us, we don't have to sell him. If an adequate request arrives, we will evaluate it, because Mattia is worth a Champions League team. Fabrizio Romano wrote a piece for The Guardian this week, indicating that Arsenal are closing in on a deal with Lokonga for 17.5 million euros, provided an agreement can be reached on a percentage of future sales. Multiple sources are reporting that Arsenal have agreed to terms with yet another Napoli target in Nuno Tavares. According to Romano, Arsenal have secured a deal to sign the Benfica left-back for 8 million euros. Up top, various sources are reporting that Napoli are amongst the clubs linked to 19-year-old striker Kai Jorge. Some of those sources say that we are in pole position, while others say he's more likely to join Milan. According to Calcio Mercato, Caio's agents will go to Italy to meet with both clubs as well as with Juve, who the Brazilians confirmed tried to snatch Caio before the pandemic. Gazzetto dello Sport are reporting that Napoli have offered 8 million euros for the young forward. Finally, Gazzetta are also reporting that our sporting director Cristiano Giuntoli has blocked Sevilla's 32-year-old goalkeeper Thomas Vachlik, who would play as the backup to Alex Meret. So those are the latest transfer rumors. I'll close the pod with our first transfer talk in a little while. Most of you wouldn't have heard the original version of this segment, so let me give you a bit of a background. I started this podcast during lockdown of the 2019-20 campaign, which of course was a very tumultuous season for us. Because of our struggles that season and the resulting mutiny, which ultimately cost Ancelotti his job, there was quite a bit of speculation about which players would stay and which players would depart. The rumor mill in the media was working overtime and it was next to impossible to figure out what was true and what was made up. The reality is the vast majority of those reports are speculative at best. Occasionally information will be leaked to one journalist or another, and I'm not talking about Fabrizio Romano or Gianluca Di Marzio by the way, but most of these reports are clickbait. With all due respect to transfer journalists, I think they often look at the facts and simply make a guess. So I did a segment where I would lay out all the facts, perhaps reference some of those very rumors, and then made an educated guess of my own, and hopefully I can present enough information for you to make an educated guess of your own. So that is what I'm going to do today. I don't think too many Napoli fans will need convincing about today's subject and where he'll end up, but there are plenty of rumors out there, so I will discuss it, and I'm talking about our captain Lorenzo Insigne. The reason we're talking about Insigne is because his contract expires at the end of next season or June 30th, 2022 to be exact. The fact that Insigne's contract has not already been renewed is reason enough to speculate. 
Nowadays, clubs really need to think about player renewals two years in advance of the expiry dates of their contracts. The club loses a bit of leverage as the end of the contract approaches, particularly when the player would easily find another home like Insignia would. Naturally, some have drawn comparisons to the Arkadouge Milik situation because if for no other reason, both got to the point where they had only one year left on their respective contracts. In my opinion, that's the only similarity, so the comparison isn't a good one at all, and I'll get to the reasons for that in just a moment. Now, there is certainly time for a new deal to be negotiated. Insigne himself said on more than one occasion that he will speak to the club after the Euros, and as I said in part 1, De Laurentiis confirmed that as well. According to Calcio Mercato, after the European Championship and after a holiday, Insigne will return to the city. First, he will speak to Luciano Spalletti to talk about Napoli's project. Then his agent, Vincenzo Pizzacana, will speak to De Laurentiis about the renewal. Quite simply, that is why you should not believe any rumors that say definitively that Insignia will leave or that Insignia will stay. The truth is, we simply don't know. That said, I think it's far more likely that he stays. Again, I'm sure you feel the same way, but let me tell you why I think he'll stay. First and foremost, Insigne has spent his entire professional career with Napoli. He started with the Primavera in 2010. He was loaned out a few times before settling in with the senior team. He played for Caveza in 09-10, then with Foggia in 10-11, and finally for Pescara in 11-12. Of course, he played with his current Azzurri teammates Marco Verratti and Ciro Immobile on that Pescara squad, where all three of them thrived. Insigne returned to Napoli's senior team in 2012 and has been there ever since. He was 21 years old at the time, and he would compete to fill the void left behind by Zico Lavezzi, who moved to PSG that summer. Meanwhile, Lorenzo's brother was also along for the ride, though the brothers never had the pleasure of playing a professional match together, at least not for the same team. Like Lorenzo, Roberto came through Napoli's youth system, but the younger Insigne was never able to secure a spot with the senior team. Roberto was loaned out to six different clubs over six seasons before ultimately being sold to Benevento. Lorenzo and Roberto didn't play on the same Serie A pitch until this past season, so Roberto didn't have the same success at Napoli that Lorenzo did. Nonetheless, the Insignia family relationship with the club goes beyond Lorenzo. Back to Lorenzo, this is not the first time that rumors have surfaced about a possible departure from his boyhood club. Insignia was linked to a number of clubs, including from the Premier League before his last contract renewal. Just last week, former Milan sporting director Massimiliano Mirabelli was on Radio Kiss Kiss and said that he spoke to Insignia's agent to bring him to Milan, but Insignia always gave Napoli priority because he loves those colors. The negotiations took a while, reportedly because Insignia wanted 50% of his image rights, which is not something De Laurentiis ever budges on. The parties eventually agreed on a 5-year extension with Insigne seeing his salary increase from 1.2 million euros a season to about 4.5 million euros. De Laurentiis famously told the media afterwards that he has a verbal agreement with Mino Raiola, Insigne's agent at the time, for a 200 million euro release clause if an English club wants to buy the player. Once again, Insigne is linked to a number of big clubs including both Milan clubs and Atletico Madrid. In April 2020, Insigne fired Raiola and replaced him with Vincenzo Pizzacana, which to me is the strongest indication that Insigne wants to stay at Napoli and that it's not only about money. If all you care about is money, then Raiola is probably the man you want as your agent. Again, that could hurt Insigne's negotiating power, but I have no doubt a deal will be reached between the player and the club. The question then becomes, how much will Napoli pay for Insigne? 
Corriere dello Sport are reporting that De Laurentiis is looking to cut Insigne's salary by 30%, which would mean a reduction from 4.5 million per season to 3.15 million. That seems like too drastic of a cut for me, unless the club gave him a longer extension, say for 5 years. In that case, 3.15 million on average over 5 years, when Insigne will be 35 years old at the end of the contract, wouldn't be unreasonable. Other than Juventus, the top Serie A clubs have only one or two players who make over 5 million euros a season, let alone a player over the age of 30. I've seen some reports that Insigne would earn 4 million per season plus bonuses that are quite easy to achieve. I don't know how anyone could know that if negotiations haven't even commenced, but a deal along those lines actually makes a lot of sense. 4 million per season would represent a reduction of half a million from Insigne's current salary. Most likely, those bonuses would be tied at least in part to the number of appearances he makes, or perhaps the number of goals he scores. In terms of appearances, if Insigne achieves that target, he would likely end up earning a higher annual salary, and at that point, the club would probably be fine with it because they know they got their money's worth. You'd rather pay a bonus after knowing a player has competed all season than before when he has the potential for injury. Insigne is 30 years old now, so injuries are certainly a risk. There could also be a bonus linked to goals. Insigne is coming off his best season and he takes the penalty kicks, so depending on the number, he might be confident that he could hit that target. And again, from the club's perspective, they would rather pay that bonus knowing how much that player has contributed rather than speculate on how much he might contribute. Those are very much the finer details of contract negotiation though. If we get to that point of the negotiation, which I think we will, then I'm sure we'll see it through and hopefully Insigne can spend his entire career with one club. So that will do it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and give us a 5-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if you need to get a hold of me, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti5, or you can find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pod. I'll be back with another episode soon, but until next time, I'm Joe Fischetti, Forza Napoli sempre! It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. 
Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.